we are um, in uh, Genesis 22. We started on this uh, chapter last week. And uh, <clears throat> this is uh, the story uh, of what is often called the, the binding of Isaac or the offering of Isaac. And uh, uh, we looked at uh, the first several verses last week. And we'll see how much further we get today. I'll, uh, we'll set our sights for, for verse 19. I, I don't know if that we'll make it that far because I, I want to make sure that we give this passage adequate, uh, adequate time to think about. But let's just, <clears throat> excuse me, begin reading in verse 1 and uh, we'll read down through verse 19, which is the whole story, <clears throat> and then review some of the things that we talked about, excuse me, talked about last week. <clears throat> so beginning in verse 1, now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take now your son your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will tell you. So Abraham arose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son. And he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go over there, and we will worship and return to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father? And he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. They came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, 
By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, indeed I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. Okay? So, uh, by way of review then, those first uh, half a dozen verses or so that we got to last week, what do you uh, remember that we talked about? Verse 2, you've got all the possible Okay, he kind of preemptively took out Abraham's excuses, didn't he? When he, he four times he specifies exactly who he is to offer. He says, "Your son, your only son, the son you love, Isaac." He, you know, he he takes every one of Abraham's possible objections and uh, and deals with them before Abraham has a chance to raise a raise a single objection. What else? Yeah. Yes, exactly. And and uh, and so that verse actually sets for us the interpretive context for the passage. So it's it's verse one that lets us know that we are to understand that it was never God's intention that Abraham actually be offered as a burnt offering, but he is testing Abraham. We'll talk more about that today. What else? Yeah, yeah. You know, and and many of us growing up in the context that that some of us grew up in anyway, we've had the opportunity to go to, you know, youth camp and conferences and special revival meetings and all kinds of things like that. And and one of the things that's characteristic of those is that we find ourselves uh, called to a, a deeper level of commitment and, ch- and challenged to a deeper level of commitment. And I suppose I know I did at various times in some of those environments, and I'm sure some of you did, too. And those are significant and those are meaningful, but they're only meaningful ultimately if they'll endure the test in the end. OK, and so. So it's one thing in, a, in the intensity of a youth camp or a, or a special uh, conference or, or a special series of meetings that we might attend. It's one thing in that context to uh, in some way express a deeper level of commitment and, and tell the Lord we really love Him and we fear Him and we want to serve Him and we want to obey Him. And, and it's important that we do that and it's important we have those opportunities to do that. But did you ever notice after those times of commitment, you come back home, how hard life oftentimes was, <laughs> oftentimes is, and you kind of, you know, you kind of get back to where the rubber meets the road and, and uh, you find out, ooh, life is still hard. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and the point is, 
that God is testing the level of our commitment. He's testing that, that, that expression that we made, that commitment that we made, the thing we said when we said, God, I'll serve you, God, I'll obey you, God, I love you, whatever it is. Uh, he's testing that. Uh, and without that test, we'll never know the reality of the commitment. So that's what he's doing with Abraham here. <clears throat> we'll talk some more about that today if we get to it. <clears throat> Excuse me. What else? You talked about how he gave so many details Yeah. Yeah. And we'll see that again today in the passage we look at today. He just the the narrative is just encumbered with all these details. You know, he goes, he gets his he gets these two uh, young men to go with him and they go out and they split the wood and they saddle the donkey. And when we get to the story today, you'll see he, they finally arrive at the place and he goes into this elaborate detail. Well, he builds an altar and then he arranges the wood. And we're just thinking, get to the point. And, and, but the narrator is just, he's encumbering the story with all these details. And the idea is to slow the story down. To keep us from rushing from point A where God says, go offer your son and, and point B where he reaches out and takes the knife and God stops him. We want to get there because that's really the climax and we're in a hurry to get there. But the narrator, as he tells the story, he encumbers it with all these little details to slow us down, to cause us to think about what Abraham is going through as this, as this test proceeds. Okay, So that's one reason why uh, as I suggested last week, one reason why the story has all these minute little details that we really don't have to have. We can just assume them. But there was another reason I suggested to you why the story is encumbered with all these details. Remember what that was? It's true. It's real. It happens. Okay. 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 It really helps us understand the reality of it, uh, which is a good point. Uh, that's not the point I was after, but that is a good point. What's, what's the other thing that this brings out to us that's so crucial to us? Yeah. yeah. It helps us understand John 3.16, doesn't it? We just blitz through John 16. God so loved the world, He gave His only... What does that mean? The story of Abraham tells us what it means that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. <laughs> By, by forcing us to take time to think about Abraham's anguish and Abraham's passion and Abraham's struggle, it gives us a context to understand what the Father went through. Because as we'll see so clearly uh, as we go forward in the story, if we get that forward today, we'll see it today, if not next week, <clears throat> this story is, a lot, is about a lot more than Abraham. And this story is about what God the Father has done. And so in this anguish and this struggle and the passion that we see this Father Abraham going through as he, as he gets this commandment from God to offer up his son as a burnt offering. I want you to think about that. A burnt offering. What is left after a burnt offering? Just ashes. That's all that's left. And from that moment until the moment when he reaches out and takes the knife and the angel of the Lord 
stops him from slaying his son. Until that moment, we understand from Hebrews that Abraham considered Isaac dead. And, and, and one of the points of prolonging the story, dragging it out, encumbering it with all these details, he built the altar, he arranged the wood, he bound his son, he laid his son on the altar, he laid his son on the wood on the altar. Now, all this, the point is to make us think about the anguish of the father who refuses to withhold his son. And that's exactly what the Father in Heaven did. And so it's, it's in the story of Abraham that we understand the full power of John 3.16 for God so loved the world. Okay. Well, yeah, he was at least probably 12 or an early teen years because we see, uh, we see that he's actually strong enough to carry all this wood on his back up the mountain. Okay, so he's obviously he's not just a, you know. Oftentimes we think of him as just a young little lad or uh, uh, just like a toddler or whatever. But he wasn't. He was a he was probably either in late adolescence or his early teen years. And we'll talk some more about that today. Okay, so uh, uh, that raises some issues about. Isaac had been that joy of his heart. Yeah. That this is a conceivable Yeah. For him to think about Yeah, he's been watching him grow for 12 years. He's been in 12, uh, 14 years or so. He's been watching this child grow. He's been enjoying all the pleasure of seeing the fulfillment of the promise of God. He's had 10, 12, 14 years to contemplate. Uh, how God's promise is being realized here and this young lad is growing up and, he, and he's experiencing all the pleasure that many of us as parents have seen, of seeing a child grow up and develop and become mature and, and learn to think on his own and act on his own and, and develop physically. And you know, all those pleasures that a parent, he's had all of these pleasures. And he's been enjoying all of this now for many years. And, and, and as we talked about last week, you know, he's, he's probably kind of thinking he's over the hump. You know, you ever get to that point in your life where you finally think, you know, I'm over the hump. You know, we've got the hard part done. And it's when he's kind of on this, he's coasting now. You know, I'm reading things into the story here, but I think it's, you know, it's reality. He's probably to some degree here kind of spiritually coasting. Going, we, we got it done. We got the promise born. I believe God and I waited on God and I was faithful to God and He honored it and now it's here and now I can enjoy it. And just when He's in the height of enjoying it, God says, I want you to offer Him as a burnt offering. I had a question. You said that he considered Him dead, but it says we will worship Him and to you. Well, I know he has the promise of God. He's wondering how in the world are you going to make this happen? But I don't think he... I don't know. Well, we'll see why I say that. I think you're right. I think you're absolutely right, Debbie. But we'll see why I say that uh, here later today because there's a passage in Scripture that makes it pretty clear that that's how he viewed it. Uh, it's notable, too, that the Scripture does not give us any insight and I think there's a reason for that. I think one of the reasons that 
that the narrator is doing that is because I think he wants us to read our own feelings into it. We all would respond to this. I mean, there's, there's certain things about it that are universal, of course, but, but every one of us as individuals would respond to this situation differently, wouldn't we? What, I, what, I, what it made me think of is you know, some of the old horror movies uh, from the black and white. You never saw the monster. Yeah. And you made it much worse yeah. than it would have been if you'd seen it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's kind of what this does. Yeah. You do exactly what we're doing. You start thinking about what was going through his mind. Yeah. 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 And I think that's exactly what the Holy Spirit is trying to do by the way he wrote the narrative. Exactly. He's trying to get us to understand because he wants us to understand the magnitude of Abraham's sacrifice, the magnitude of Abraham's commitment to God. And he also wants us to understand the magnitude of God's love for us. And he does that by by leaving this room for our imagination, if you will, or hopefully a sanctified imagination by which we go, man, how would I feel in that situation? And, he, and he just, as I said, he drags it out so that he forces us to take time and contemplate. What if it was me? What if it was my son? What if it was my daughter? What if it was my child? You know, how would I feel? And so that's clearly one of the things he's doing. Well, let's move forward in the story. Um, Yes, go ahead. Yeah. We're going to talk about that today. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're going to talk about that today some, but I don't want to get I don't want to talk about it too much and there's a reason for that. This isn't Isaac's story, you notice that? He didn't tell us anything about Isaac. So there again, we're kind of left to our imagination, but we're given some significant clues that I think are profound about Isaac, but are also profound, tell us some profound things about the Lord Jesus. So that's a, that's a very important question for us to address. Uh, but uh, think for a minute now, we, we, when we left them last time, they had left the two young men and the donkey and they were walking together. And the, and the scripture points out, makes a point that they are now walking together. So we see this picture of Abraham and Isaac and they have, have another two or three miles to go to walk together and Isaac has all the wood for the sacrifice on his back and Abraham has uh, carrying the pot of fire and he's carrying the knife. Okay, And they're walking on together. And, and what's interesting here is, is first scripture points that out. And, and, uh, and, and, and I like to just kind of think about this little two or three mile walk up the mountain. Okay. And picture these two figures. Now, instinctively, when we read the story, we just think, okay, father and son are walking on together. Okay, well, that's all well and good. But, but I want you to think about the, the remarkable difference between these two figures that are walking up the mountain. I mean, can we imagine... I mean, sure, they're from the same family, they're father and son, and they're from the same culture, so they have many things in common. But think about the differences between them. Here we have this man who's 110, 115 years old. For 75, for 50, 50, 60, 75, 65 years or so, he had lived in Mesopotamia. Remember, we talked all about that at the beginning of the Abraham story. He lived in this metropolitan area near the, uh, what is now Babylon. And, 
And uh, so he lived in this metropolitan area and he had all the experiences of being a businessman in a metropolitan area and all that sort of thing. And then he and his father left and they moved and they went to Heron and we don't know what they did in Heron. But he had another 10 or 15 years that he lived there in Heron. And then his father died and God said to him, because I want you to go uh, uh, to land I'm going to show you and you, you leave your family. And, all. and Abraham does all that and he leaves that. He become, If he hasn't already become, he is by now a, 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 a farmer based basically a, a nomad. And, uh, and so he leaves and he takes his, his entourage, which eventually uh, numbers in the hundreds. So he's obviously this very skilled, very intelligent, uh, gifted, uh, successful uh, businessman, farmer, a nomad, whatever. Okay, He comes down into the land of Canaan. He actually becomes, eventually he becomes uh, to be quite uh, uh, recognized, uh, as we'll see later in the story, he becomes quite recognized. He's called a, he's called like a great ruler, a great chieftain. Uh, this is, I mean, this guy is deeply experienced, profoundly successful, greatly blessed of God, severely tested of God for 25 years, and has come through these tests with. Uh, in most cases with resounding success and a few significant failures. This is a guy whose whose life experience and depth of life experience is uh, even eclipses anything that's represented here in in this room today. Okay, and and his faith experience is so profound. He has walked with God so many years and he's he's walked by faith so many years and God has been faithful to him and he has seen God's faithfulness faithfulness to him over these many years and he's had military conquests and he is he has hobnobbed with kings he's hobnobbed with Melchizedek the king of Salem and with with uh, Pharaoh the king of Egypt and with with Abimelech the king of Gerar and with the king of Sodom and you know he's 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 been high up he's had all these life experiences accompanied with a with a with a remarkable life of faith. This is a remarkable guy. I mean, I'd like to walk with him for a couple of miles, wouldn't you? And walking with him is a teenager. Now, you know, admittedly, teenagers are a little different today than they were then, but he was still a teenager, right? And I think Isaac was probably, I'm sure Isaac was a young man of faith, but it was not a faith that had yet been tested, you know, on any significant level. Uh, of course, when we were teenagers and God tested our faith, it was a pretty big test and we thought it was big. But now that we're a few years older, we realize, you know, how, how soft and easy those early tests were compared to the kind of tests we face later in life, right? So here's, here's Isaac and he's walking along and he's just a teenager. He doesn't have any of the experience of this guy that's walking next to him. He doesn't have any of that perspective, depth of wisdom and experience and knowledge. He believes in the God that his father believes in. He trusts the God that his father trusts in, but he hasn't had any level of testing or experience of faith. He hasn't had the opportunity yet. It's not a criticism of Isaac. It's just reality. It's just the way. So we have this. This aged, experienced, wise, faithful old man walking beside this young, inexperienced teenager. And I would suggest to you that most of the walk is quiet. It's silent. Why do I say that? Well, you notice when Isaac does want to talk, what does he say? 
Well, I mean, how does he start the conversation? Father? He calls out to him. Obviously, they aren't in the middle of a conversation here, right? It's not they're just going along in a conversation. He goes, Father, and what does Abraham say? Here I am. Have you ever ever been with your kids like that? You know, driving along in the car or whatever, and you're in to- two totally different worlds, right? Maybe Isaac had his headphones. Yeah, he probably had his iPod on, you know, and you know, whatever. Uh, but that's that's just what I picture. I picture Abraham, and he's walking along, and we know what Abraham's thinking about, right? But Isaac's just this teenager, you know, just kind of bopping along with life. Life just happens, and you know, and it's all an adventure, you know. And he's looking at the rocks and the snakes and the, the birds and, you know, whatever it is teenagers looked at back then, you know, listening to whatever his version of an iPod was, you know. And he's just bopping along. And then he goes, and finally it dawns on him. Wait a minute. There's something, something wrong with this picture here. So I think about that walk and I think about that chasm of experience, of life experience and faith experience between Isaac and Abraham. It's just a it's just a chasm of difference. It's just such a such a a, a wide gap between these two. And I wonder how could Abraham ever communicate to Isaac the significance of the promises of God and and all that he now knows about God and has experienced about God. Yeah. And yet the question in my mind is when Abraham says that, because of all he's experienced in life, it has so much more meaning than it does to Isaac, who's just this young kid who grows up and he says, well, of course I am. I mean, why not? I mean, I was born this way, you know? And he takes it for granted, right? Until when? So he's laying on that altar and he hears the voice of God to his father. And I want to suggest to you that that generation gap, if you will, and I don't use that in the sense that we often talk about it today, you know, and it implies hostility and bitterness and all that sort of thing, but I think there was a generation gap there. I don't think there was hostility. I don't think there was any kind of a bitterness that we often associate with parents and teenagers today, but I think there was very clearly, there had to be a generation gap, given the things we've just talked about. The difference, that chasm between between Abraham, this wise, experienced, 115-year-old man and this teenage kid. There had to be a generation gap. But God did a work there at Moriah that bridged that gap. And when those two figures walked down that mountain, they were one. In a way that nobody other than the two of them would ever be able to understand. Because together they had faced death. And together they had heard the voice of God. 
And together they had heard the promise of God. And for Isaac now, it was no longer Dad's story. It was his story. Well, we've talked a lot about what Abraham went through, what he was thinking about as he went through this process for three days. Okay, as we mentioned, Moriah is a three-day journey away. It's not in his backyard. This is not an offering that he could go and impulsively make in a minute and get it over with. It, he, had to, it was, he had to make preparations. He had to take this trip. He had to think about it for three days. Okay, So we've talked, and, and it's very clear that the Holy Spirit, through Moses as the narrator, is trying to get us to stop Excuse me, and think about all these things that Abraham is thinking about and all these things that he's wrestling with and struggling with. He's thinking about offering up his son, his only son, the son he loved, Isaac, as a burnt offering. Okay? Abraham fully expects that this is what he needs to do. But there are some little clues in the passage that tell us this is not all Abraham was thinking, right? What are those clues? We've already mentioned some of them. Debbie mentioned one. Okay. When he says to his... His, uh, his young men, he says, we will go up there and offer sacrifice and return. The idea is we'll return. Okay? So, okay, so obviously Abraham is grasping here, right? He's going, I don't understand how this is all going to work out, but you know, we'll return to you. Okay? There's another clue. What is that? Okay, he says God will provide a ram. Now, uh, turn with me over to Hebrews uh, just for a minute. Keep your finger there in Genesis and turn over to, to uh, Hebrews and uh, uh, chapter 11. Uh, and uh, pick up in... Uh, Verse 17, this is, of course, the, the great Hall of Fame of Faith. God's talking about the faith of all these great men of old. And he says in verse 17, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, And Isaac your descendants will be called. Okay. So he's saying, okay, now Abraham by faith offered up his son Isaac. But this is the guy to whom the promise has been given, i.e. Abraham. Abraham had received promises. One of the promises that he received was that in Isaac his descendants would be called. He says, now Abraham is offering up his son. Now God made it very explicit in chapter 22 of Genesis that Abraham did not withhold his son. When God said, I want him as a burnt offering, from the moment God said, I want him as a burnt offering, Abraham said, I will give him as a burnt offering. He did not withhold his son. Okay? But as he did this, he is recognizing that the son that he is offering up is the one about whom the promise has been made that in Isaac your descendants shall be called. Okay? Verse 19. He considered 
that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. Okay? And so, now we get even this deeper insight. We have to wait a couple thousand years before we get the writer of Hebrews writing it to give us this deeper insight into what's going on in Abraham's mind back here in chapter 22. But one of the things that Abraham is doing is that he's expecting that he's going to have to offer his son. God has told him to offer his son. He is going to go offer his son. But he also, at the same time, is believing that God has made a promise about Isaac that in Isaac all of his descendants will come. Okay. So, so while Abraham is going through all we've been talking about for the last two weeks, all that struggle, all that thought about offering his son, all that thought about seeing his son literally, physically reduced to ashes, while he's going through that, he is simultaneously thinking, this is the son about whom God has promised in him all of his sentence will come. And then we, then we discover something about the experience of faith. We discover something about what it means to walk by faith. You see, as we've already established, it's pretty clear that it's the intent of the narrator in the way he narrates the story for us to seriously, deeply contemplate Abraham's struggle. The anguish, the brokenness of heart, the sense of loss. He wants us to feel that. He wants us to think about that. But it would be a mistake to think that that is all Abraham thinks in this three-day trial. It would be a mistake if we only viewed that part of the story and didn't realize that while all that is going on in Abraham's heart and mind, and while God wants us to contemplate that all of that is going on in Abraham's heart and mind, he also wants us to understand that Abraham, without knowing how it's going to happen, still believes that the promise of God would be fulfilled in Isaac. And so it says, he even contemplates the fact that God could raise people from the dead. And it's never happened before. This is Genesis 22, folks. This has never happened before. But he's contemplating the possibility. It doesn't say here that Abraham believed that God would raise Isaac from the dead. He just realized that's an option. That's a possibility. Have you ever done that when you've been tested? You try and figure out all the ways God can fix the problem. Usually, he doesn't fix it the way you've figured out he's going to fix it, you know. Uh, I've got some graphic stories in my life of times when I've been, okay, I'm in this predicament. I'm in it now. I know God will do it this way or God will do it this way. And he never does. He always got some better way. Yeah, yeah, whatever else happens. You know? So he's thinking, okay, God will provide a ram or, or my son will be raised. And when he's talking about raised from dead, remember, he's been talking about put back together from ashes. Okay. This is a lot of faith. But this is the, what we have to understand here is the nature of the life of faith. The nature of the experience of faith. What we must conclude, what we must know for sure about Abraham's faith is Abraham's faith was not fatalistic. See, we've talked a lot about what Abraham is going through here. His struggle, his, 
his, uh, his sense of loss, his sense of separation from his son. Okay. He's, he is experiencing that, but it's not fatalistic. And one of the mistakes that we often fall into in this life of faith is we can fall into, for those of us who are puddle glums, for those of us who are, who are, uh, who are, are given to, uh, you know, kind of pessimistic frame of reference, I say us for a reason. For those of us who are, okay, it's very easy for our faith to become fatalistic. Well, just whatever God asks. You know, I, you know, just, you know, God says that I just need to do it and whatever it costs and, you know, and, and, and we lose sight of the promise and we lose sight of the hope and we lose sight of the love of God. And we just think, well, God's great and He's powerful and whatever He says He gets and if He wants me to go through this, I guess I just need to go through this. That is, yes, Gary. Okay, great. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. And in fact, this story is so difficult, people are still allegorizing it. <laughs> but Abraham didn't. Good point. So he's not fatalistic. But you'll notice that it's very clear that the Holy Spirit wants us to understand that his faith isn't a Pollyanna faith either. See, we have these two extremes in faith, don't we? We have those people uh, who, you know, well, yeah, you know, I love God and I serve God, but, you know, it's really kind of a big chore. And it really isn't very pleasant. Because God's kind of this big ogre. You know, and he just asks all this hard, difficult stuff of me and, and I've got to go through it because that's just the nature of being a creature when he's the creator. And, you know, and so there's that fatalistic faith. And then there's the Pollyanna faith that, that any time, you know, it faces a problem, oh, it'll all be okay. Life is great. Life is good. God's good. He loves me, you know. Yeah, my kid died, but that's okay. You know, I'll be all right. Yeah, yeah, I went bankrupt and lost my business, but that's okay. You know, God, God loves me. And, and they give this aura or this... And you've, you've seen people like this, you know, Christians like this, who, who want to give this impression that nothing hurts. That there's no anguish. That there's no pain in the life of faith. And what we see in the life of Abraham, and I should, would suggest in the life of every man of God down through Scripture is that the life of faith is not a life of fatalistic faith, nor is it a life of Pollyanna faith, but it's a life in which we face the problems, we confront the problems, we suffer the pain, we suffer the anguish, we suffer the loss, but we do so with a confident expectation of the goodness of God and the faithfulness of God. And, and, and to use maybe a trivial example, but one that, that I, I'm sure many of us can relate to here that have children who have grown is we've all reached that point, you know, who, who have children who have grown and left home. We've all reached that point where we've seen them pack up the car and drive off, right? You know that feeling, right? It hurts. It just hurts. I remember when my son moved out of the house and moved over to the stadium. And that's not very far, folks. That's two miles. Okay? 
It hurt. Would I have had it any other way? It's what I raised him for, right? I raised him to leave home. And so, so there's this sense of pain and there's a sense of loss. But there's also, also the sense of they're going on to greater things. They're going on to experience the things I, I want them to experience. I mean, I, I had no idea how I would live through my son moving to Russia for two years. I had no idea how I could endure for two years. Did I want him not to go? No. Well, that's just an example, and, and many of you, like I say, can relate to that. That's just an example of, of how it's possible for us to experience simultaneously faith and pain. Faith and anguish. Faith and loss. And that's what we're seeing here in this unfolding drama of Abraham and Isaac. We're seeing Abraham... And the Holy Spirit clearly wants us to understand Abraham's pain and his loss. But he wants us to understand as well that simultaneously to that, simultaneous to feeling that pain and that loss, he is also walking forward in faith going, well, I don't know, God will provide a lamb or he'll raise my son from... I don't know, but he just said, through Isaac, my descendants would be called. And so I don't know how this is going to work out. But he fully expected that his son would be ashes in a matter of minutes. And so Hebrews says that when God came to him and said to him, don't lay a hand on that lad and do nothing to him. It says that Abraham received Isaac back from the dead as a type. And we're not going to have time today to explore this whole type thing. We'll talk some more about that next week because if we miss that, we've missed an important part of this story. But I want you to think about this. God came to Abraham when he's sailing along, cruising along in, you know, in cruise control, spiritual cruise control, because now everything's going well. And God comes to him out of the clear blue sky, literally, and says to him, I want you to burn up your son as an offering. He doesn't explain it. He doesn't tell him why. He doesn't say, it'll be okay. You just do it and trust me. He doesn't do any of that. He just says, you burn up your son as an offering. Now, we know it's a test because the narrator puts that in in verse 1, but he didn't come to Abraham and say, okay, Abraham, this is a test. Abraham doesn't know it's a test. He just thinks God wants him to offer up his promised son as a burnt offering. And he got up early the next morning and saddled his donkey and began the preparations. Because why? Because he already had determined in his heart to follow through and obey God. Meaning that from the outset, as far as Abraham was concerned, Isaac was dead. Now, that doesn't mean that he had abandoned hope it just means that God has said he was supposed to kill him. And in Abraham's heart, he was killed. 
And all these steps down the line that we read about as we get to the top of Moriah is this is just Abraham going through the process of getting to where God told him to be. And then, and then, he reaches out to grab that knife and God says, don't touch that lad. And at that moment, Abraham received him back from the dead three days later as a type. You were saying, right? I just thought of something. He also had, had to go through his mind. He had to go back there because he was Yeah. Yeah, uh, Charles questioned me about that last week at the end. Of the, what, what, what about Sarah? Well, Sarah's blanked out of the story. You know, we have no idea. Did she know ahead of time? Did she not know? Sarah? I don't know. But yeah, there, she's in there somewhere and we don't know. We're, that's left for our imagination too. But. So now we see that, that this story has profound... When, when he says that he received him back as a type, you know, all the red flags go up. You know, all the signals go up. You know, beep, 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 beep. Don't miss this. So then we discover this story is not just about Abraham and Isaac, is it? And we don't have time to explore it today. We'll look at it next week. This story is not just about Abraham and Isaac. But this story is about something even greater and more profound. You'll notice that God says to Abraham, He says, because you have not withheld your son, your only son. That word withheld there is translated in the Septuagint, which is the first Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. It's translated with the same Greek word that Paul uses in Romans 8, verse 32, when he says, He that did not spare, he that did not withhold his own son, but offered him up freely for us all, how will he not also freely give us all things? And so we see very clearly the parallel between Abraham as the father, not withholding his son, we see clearly the parallel between him and the Heavenly Father, who on that very same mountain, 2,000 years later, offered up his son and did not withhold him. And so Abraham says, we're going to call this place the mountain of the Lord. Or we're going to call this place the Lord will provide. And then I want you to notice, uh, let me get back there and then we'll quit. Uh, I want you to notice that it says uh, in... In verse 14, Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide... <clears throat> Excuse me. As it is said to this day, when it says this day, what day is it referring to? What time is it referring to? Moses in the wilderness. Okay. So here we are now, over 400 years later, Moses writing about it says 
that because of what God did at Abraham, it is still said among the Jews 400 years later as they are out in the wilderness in the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. There's a lot of significance there. We'll have to develop that next week. Okay? So we'll go on next week. And I have study sheets. I didn't hand them out. And it's just as good because we won't get there next this week anyway. So I'll give them to you next week.